when they say processed food, most of these mean industrial food. They mean, hey, that food's broken down into constituent parts and then reassembled into a chip. You know, if you're eating broccoli, you're eating the inflorescence, the flower of a being. That's a plant, which is a living creature. Each species that I work with becomes like a friend. I mean, I just look at the direction things are going. I'm like, it looks extremely dystopian, this track world. It seems like we're willing to destroy our own home. We'll drain the oceans, we'll destroy the atmosphere, we'll blot out the sun. We gotta get to Mars. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, you are in for an adventure on today's episode. I cannot describe enough how much fun I had in today's episode. It was beyond mind-blowing. Daniel Vitalis is, first of all, just one of the coolest human beings I have ever met. Daniel has such an incredible TV show, and it was an honor to talk with him. And on top of that, he provides such a paradigm shift when it comes to understanding our connection to nature, our connection to food, what actually constitutes food, the difference between whole foods and processed foods, and what that means. We talk about how you can be a hunter-gatherer today. We talk about a lot of really fascinating, complicated, and controversial subjects, like the concept of eating animals and how that relates to our aversion to death and separation, the hierarchy and value of humans and animals, things like zoos and aliens, and even an array of topics like the origin of music, artificial intelligence, the megafauna, virtual reality, what actually constitutes an artifact. Friends, I cannot wait for you to come on this journey with us. And Daniel is so kind. He is offering my audience 10% off any order at his website, surthrival.com. So use the coupon code Avalon, A-V-A-L-O-N for 10% off at S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L.com. And that is a limited time code for only two weeks after this episode airs. So definitely snag it now. There will be a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash wildfed. So definitely check that out. And there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then there will be another giveaway on my Instagram. Find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash guide. And one more thing before we jump in. 
Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Daniel Vitalis. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I honestly, I was saying this to the guest just right before this, and I was thinking this just before recording this. I had so much fun prepping for this interview. So the backstory is the team for this fabulous guest reached out to me quite a while ago. I'm here with Daniel Vitalis, and he is the genius behind a really cool comprehensive brand that includes podcasts and public speaking and workshops. And he has this super cool show called Wild Fed on the Outdoor Channel. And so I saw his information and I was an immediate yes, just based on, you know, the whole vibe and all of it. And then I actually dived in and 
it's just so cool. Everybody, friends, you got to check out the show Wild Fed. I'm sure we'll talk all about it in this show. But basically, Daniel is a modern day hunter gatherer and he goes to all these really awesome places. And on each show, he both hunts something and gathers something and gets to meet the local people and learn about the community and, and how to hunt and gather those specific items and why they do that. And then at the end, they make a really awesome meal with these, you know, this food that they acquired. It's just so cool. And I have so many questions. So <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I really appreciate your enthusiasm about what I'm doing. Thanks for having me today. And, and thank you for sharing my perspective with your audience today. So huge question for you. And this is actually the question that I typically start off the show with. And I'm really excited to hear the answer. So your personal story, because you actually, it's kind of like a teaser because in the in the opening for the show, like the theme music and the opening monologue, you mentioned how you weren't always doing this growing up, the hunter-gatherer stuff. You started it as an adult, but then it kind of, all the episodes kind of just, you know, dive into you right now. So we, we don't really get your backstory. So I'm just dying to know, like, <laughs> it's like such a cliffhanger. I'm like, what was he doing as a child? Did he just wake up one day and was like, I gotta like hunt, you know, <laughs> like what happened? Yeah, well, my my I've always been really interested in food, and and it's because uh, you know I grew up with a so I'm forty I'll turn forty five this year this month, you know I grew up in the eighties and the nineties you know America at the time is like a processed food desert you know I mean it was just like grew up on hamburger helper type food you know hamburger helper you know all that kind of stuff yeah or like you know Twinkies and like all the ho hos and you know I mean there was just wasn't food culture in the United States at the time. You know, today it's so different. So I, I talk to like, you know, I guess young millennials and Gen Z kids who, who've grown up in this environment where we have all these famous chefs and incredible cookbooks and restaurants everywhere in our cities. You know, you can take incredible food tours and there's a renaissance in organic farming and there's whole foods. It's like none of that existed. You know, I grew up in a time where American food was highly, highly industrialized processed food. You know, I also grew up pretty low socioeconomic level, well, lowest, I guess, tier socioeconomic level in the U.S. And to a single mom, you know, my, my childhood was a real struggle. Food was inconsistent a lot. And that made me really interested in feeding myself. <laughs> and so I just was always interested in food. And, and when I was a teenager, well, I, you know, I moved out of my house really young, had to learn how to feed myself. And so I developed an interest in nutrition, but I kind of out of necessity. And I followed a lot of fad diets as a young person. So I lived 10 years as a vegan. I lived probably 15 years as a vegetarian. And I was deep into the raw food culture, the sort of vegan raw foodism. Lived like that for so long. In fact, I'll say I lived that way longer than most of the people who do it. So I really got to test what happens at the outer limits of that. And, you know, so it's very, it's for old friends of mine, it's kind of ironic and funny that I've come around to like having essentially having a hunting television show, given who they knew me to be in the past. But, but for me, it's been a continuous journey. So it's like been learning to take care of myself, learning to feed myself and following a thread of interest because, you know, I first became, you know, again, you know, I mentioned before, like there's whole foods now. I, when I first, I was about 16 years old when I was like, you know, I'm gonna start going to health food stores. But at that time, a health food store was like, you know, the size of the average person's like bathroom. <laughs> it had like very little in there, right? You could get those like sugar dried banana slices. You could get dates rolled in oat flour. 
you know, maybe they'd have like a wilty carrot textured vegetable protein, soy protein or something like they didn't, there just wasn't a health food store culture yet. So, you know, I started there and I've watched this whole movement happen, you know, to where there, there became more common to where I remember when wild oats took over. And then I remember watching whole foods take over and watching organic as a meaningful label and definition take root. I've watched the farming culture developed, like all of this has happened sort of, you know, during my tenure as a, you know, nutritionally inclined person. So I've kind of been following that thread and piece by piece by piece that led me to where I am today. I don't have uh, like a formal education in nutrition or anything like that. This has just been a, several decades of, of deep personal interest. So I really love food as well, even though I eat very simply. So I don't eat like crazy combinations. And like if I go to a restaurant, I'll just get like a completely plain steak or like I I eat very plain because I just find it so delicious when you remove all the additives and everything. I'm just good with like the raw, like (laughs) like real thing. This is super random. But that said, this is kind of embarrassing. My guilty pleasure at night is I, I just read like all the websites about like restaurants and grocery stores. Cause I, I just, so I just love like learning about food and all of that stuff. So the thing I've been honing in on recently is I keep reading about whole foods and that it's, that it was the first certified organic grocery store. Cause you mentioned like the organic labeling and I have this on my to-do list to look that up. Cause I'm like, what does that even mean? Because it's not all organic. Like, do you even know what that means? I'm sorry. That's so random. No, no, I don't know what that means. I don't put a lot of stock in it. You know, I mean, I was coming out of a Whole Foods with a friend uh, a couple of years ago, you know, my, my good friend Grant and I make this TV show together. So we're on the road all the time and we're coming out of a Whole Foods the other day and I'm, I'm kind of, it's late and I'm kind of like a little irritated by all of the products. Cause there's just so many products, right? It, it's, you know, the, the spirit of what it was initially has changed so much, right? It's now it's more like, just like a, ultra gentrified supermarket, you know? So there's just all these products and we're walking by kind of laughing at the different products and we get outside and it's sort of that feeling, you know, after you come out of a big department store where it's like you come back to your senses, you know, cause it's been the lights and the music and the intensity. We step outside and I go like, wow, man, this is what we spent the last couple of decades, like trying to create. And now it's here and it's annoying. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's obviously so much better than where we were before, where, you know, when you didn't really have options for good food. So it has been really cool to watch, you know, whatever that means, organic certified, whatever. It's been really neat to watch over the last couple decades, Americans get back in touch with food. You know, it's cool to see there's been a, a rebound and people, the idea, I don't like to say processed food. We can get into that in a little while. Like what I think, I think that's a really confusing term for some reasons that we'll get into, but, but industrialized food, that's, you know, I think people have really they reached their limit with that. And you can see it everywhere now. I mean, now it's just common to find, you know, at least here where I live, I mean, there's farmer's markets every weekend and I'm in a pretty rural place and we have access to, you know, everybody's raising their own chickens now or they're, you know, there's just so much of that happening. You know, hunting and gathering obviously is a pretty extreme end of it. But when I see how much interest there is in it, even for folks who are like never going to actually pursue that as a lifestyle, they're just interested in, in knowing more about it. I mean, that just like really like excites me because I'm just glad people are caring again about what they eat. Are you paying with your palm at Whole Foods? Have you seen that? 
Yeah, it's so funny. It's like there's that great little bit in Revelation, right? Like that uh, everyone will take a mark in the right hand or the forehead, out which you cannot buy or sell. You know, it's so it's so, it's so interesting. It's like okay, <laughs> uh, things are getting dark. I guess we're doing that now. Oh my gosh, so funny. Actually, that's interesting about that. I love that you said that about the processed food terminology. It's kind of like two things that made me think of. Do you know Farmer Lee Jones? Uh, no. He is a farmer who does a lot of really nutritious farming, <laughs> but he, he um, creates a lot of food for like celebrity chefs and restaurants. And he's a character and he was the answer to a question on Jeopardy. He's like that much of like a celebrity farmer. We had a whole conversation about how he doesn't like the word sustainable because he was saying that nature is not technically sustainable. Like it goes through phases. What word did he like instead? I think regenerative. But the word processed, do you know Bill Schindler perchance? I do, yeah. Okay, so I love his work. And we were talking about how with processing, like the processing of food is really what made us human. Like it was our ability to, well, not made us human, but like our, our ability to properly process Food is how we, you know, evolved going back to making food, you know, more applicable. Like each culture has a different way of like processing their food historically. And it doesn't necessarily mean the industrialized, like you were saying. So what do you mean by that? The difference between like processed food and industrialized food? Bill and I are on the same page with a lot, a lot of this, but although I'll say Bill's got a deep interest in, you know, he's really into like sourdough and he's really into, you know, how should you eat a potato and like, you know, all of these specific processing methods to remove, you know, toxins and anti-nutrients and things like that from food, which I also have an interest in. But bigger picture, what I'm, what I, how I look at it is if I go out with my wife and and we harvest, like, let's say it's, we're heading into the fall. So let's say we go out to a cranberry bog and we're going to gather a basket full of cranberries. I'm not going to come home and just drop those into a, a pot and make cranberry sauce because every cranberry is going to have a little stem on it and there's going to be some little leaf fragments and things like that. So we need to process them. So we're going to spend some time going through and picking all those little stems off. They'd be bitter. They'd ruin the, the sauce. You know, That's a real simple example. So let's get more complicated. If I was going to go out and harvest wild rice, I need to get that rice into the boat. But then when I bring it home, I need to lay it out to dry. There's all kinds of insects that'll be in there, hoppers and little crawlers. And those all need to like sort of lay that rice on a tarp. And as it dries, all those bugs are going to leave. And then it's covered in a chaff. So I'm going to need to process that. So what I need to do is heat that rice up, dry and parch that chaff. Then I have to winnow it off and actually get rid of it. This is hours and hours of processing that has to happen. So it's not like I can go out to a wild rice plant and just pick off bits of wild rice and they're ready to cook. You know, there's like a lot of processing. If I come home with a deer or a bear or a fish, it's not ready to just, I can't just throw a bear on the frying pan, right? So I've got to process that animal for hours. Most of human existence you know, I always find this interesting too, because if we, let's just say we just fully accept wholesale current anthropology, that would put us at like 300,000 years in our current form as Homo sapiens sapiens, as our current, you know, incarnation, although Homo, our genus goes back much further. We, we've been most of that time, most of our time was spent processing food. I mean, that's like the primary thing that we're doing all day, right? So if we could transport ourselves to a pre-agricultural village right now, you and I, what we would see is there'd probably be quite a few fires. And 
even though it's still, you know, it's only September, you know, it's not cold enough that we need all those fires for warmth. We need those fires for processing because you need heat to process a lot of the foods that humans eat. So people would be around those fires. We'd see people grinding seeds or grinding grains, you know, in a mortar and pestle or a mono and matate. We'd, you know, we'd see people shelling nuts. We'd see, you know, all of that is food processing. And, and, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think a good argument can be made that the origins of music actually come from processing because picture the sound in a village, you know, this woman over here is pounding grains with a stone. This person over here is grinding something with a stone that's making a more rasping sound. This person's over here cutting. And you can imagine how over time those sounds would become rhythmic as people would start to create a soundscape that animated the work because this is the work. This is our, what's happening now we've substituted, you know, now your eight hours in a cubicle is a surrogate substitution for the time that you would have spent doing this food processing. So the whole, you know, think of it like this, like when people could first buy processed food. Now, if we say buying processed food, it sounds like a sinful thing, like a like a bad thing. In the past, what it meant was, oh my gosh, like we've reached this stage where I don't have to spend my day processing food. People were living on farms, right? So 150 years ago, most people are living on farms outside of urban centers and they're spending a lot of their time processing that food. So when they could purchase already processed food, that was like a big deal. And that freed up time that could then be spent in other pursuits. Now what's happened is now people spend that time doing other jobs because somewhere else their food's being processed. So I prefer, so when I sit down to a bowl of wild rice and venison, I'm eating processed food, but it's confusing. Today, people would say, oh, you're eating whole foods. It's like, no, whole, that deer would have hair on it and eyeballs. <laughs> you know, that rice would be covered in chaff. So that's, that's the whole food. So I've had to process it. But what people mean when they say processed food mostly is they mean industrial food. They mean, hey, that food's in a can, that food's in a bag, that food's been broken down into constituent parts and then reassembled into a chip or a flake or you know, something like that into some kind of animal shape or whatever kind of thing we're talking about, cookie crisp, you know, all that stuff. That's when people they mean industrial food, they say processed food. So just to be clear, food processing even on the most natural possible diet is basically your all day kind of work. Beneath that, we should ask ourselves the question of like, what is food? And that's the bigger picture. We're sort of like, imagine like the Catholic church in the dark ages where it's like, oh, you, you can't pray directly to God. You have to go through like the priesthood and they are the intermediary between you and God or something like that. We have something like that going on with food where there's so many steps and people between us and the source of food that we don't remember what food is now. There's like a gastronomic, cultural gastronomic amnesia or something happening. So if we ask the question, what's food? You know, we could, we could start, we could get all metabolic or chemical and we could be like, you know, well, food's caloric and all of that, but that's not really what I mean. It's like bigger picture. What's food? Like, here's what food is. Food is the body parts of living beings. It really doesn't matter what kind of diet, whether you're like on a full carnivore diet, which would I call like one end of the spectrum, or you're a full vegan diet on the other end of the spectrum, you're eating the body parts of creatures. So, you know, if you're eating broccoli, you're eating the inflorescence, the flower of a being called Brassica oleracea. That's what we call it. 
that's a plant, which is a living creature. So it's a being, it's an entity. And its flower head is what we call broccoli. And we break that body part off and we eat that part of its body. And if we sit down to a bowl of sauerkraut, it's like you're eating like a gazillion bodies. They're bacterial, but bacteria are living beings. So they're entities. So you're eating their whole bodies. You're actually eating their like a whole civilization of them when you have a bowl of sauerkraut, right? Or some yogurt or something like that. It's obvious when we're eating meat, it's like, hey, that's a leg or a wing or you know a gizzard or any kind of whatever body part. When you're eating a mushroom, it's like, okay, you're eating the fruiting body of a mycelial mass, which is a living creature. So we can't yet synthesize food. Like if somebody could develop the technology to synthesize food so you could take rocks and turn that into calories, like, wow, that would revolutionize the world. But that hasn't, that technology doesn't exist yet. So all foods have to start off as living creatures and we either eat them whole or we eat them in part. There aren't really any exception. The close, the, you could be like the closest exception to something you could get calories from that wouldn't be a body part. You could be like, okay, milk, but that's really a liquid tissue like blood. So it's, it's just a body part. Or you could be like alcohol has seven calories per gram, as I'm sure you know, being a wine enthusiast. But it's like, you know, that alcohol is the excretion of the back, the yeasts who consume it. It's like just a body excretion. It's a liquid tissue. It's like we, we can't synthesize food. So when we eat, we're all predators in that sense, regardless of like how we approach food or what diet we subscribe to. So food is living things and you make yourself out of living things. And, and why I think that's important this has, Melanie, stuck with me for years. This like burns in my mind. Most people build their bodies out of creatures they've never seen. They don't even know what they look like. So like how many people have eaten a cod, but how many people know what a codfish looks like? Like actually looks like, <laughs> not the filet, but the actual animal, you know? So many people would not recognize a full-grown lettuce plant. They might recognize it when it's young and it looks like the lettuce on their plate, but most people would never recognize a full-grown asparagus plant. It's, it's, a, it's astonishing that we have reached that level of removal where we don't recognize. We, people can walk by on the streets creatures they've been eating their whole life and not recognize them. And that's just astonishing to me. Yeah, I was trying to think of anything that would be, I guess Bill does talk about cultures that eat clay, but that's not really caloric. But it's not caloric. Yep, that's geophagy, right? So that's that's a great point. Salt's really similar. You know, we we do require salt, but it's not caloric. So we're eating a mineral for the electrolyte balance, or we might eat clay because it has adsorptive properties because of its electrical charge. But that's really different than food. You know, we can't really sustain ourselves on that. Yeah, I had a little baby epiphany about this when, and again, this is a very far removed version from doing this, and you know, the wild. But when I started growing cucumbers in my aero garden in my apartment, and I was like, oh, these these things are actually alive. Like I like I had this paradigm shift where I was not to go into the whole ethical debate about things. There's often this idea with veganism and, you know, raw foodism and stuff that you're not doing any killing or anything. But when I started growing my cucumbers, I was like, no, these things are definitely alive. Like I felt like I remember the first time I ate one that I grew, it was a different experience from picking it up 
at the grocery store because the, the reason they felt so alive is they like, they would like, they grow up my windows and I would feel the need to like talk to them and like tell them not to grow there, but they still would. And they would like reach out and like. They reach out. So it's like sentience. They're reaching out to find a connection to climb. It's sentience, you know? It's crazy. Their little tendrils go out and they like find things. They're like taking over my orchid right now. And so I'm like talking to the orchid. I'm like, are you okay with this? Yeah. yeah. And I would argue that when a plant is green, so if you think about like a leaf on a, let's say the leaf of your cucumber plant, you know, at some basic level, we could think of it as like a solar panel in a sense, because it's collecting sunlight for photosynthesis and that's how it's producing energy, which is just this incredible miracle. But, but that means that it's, it's photosensitive, right? So it's sensitive to light, which is kind of like being able to see if a cucumber plant, like your cucumber plants can move its leaves over time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which, cause it wants to be in the light. Like I watch all the time here in the forest where I live, trees will bend themselves over and reach themselves out even until they become structurally unstable to reach out into an area of sunlight. So I often wonder, can they see me? Because if I cast, maybe they can't see me like I can see them, but when I cast a shadow on them, can they perceive, hey, there's sunlight here and shadow here, something's moved in the way? Like there's some rudimentary kind of a, they're photoreceptive. We underestimate them. You know how it is like if you've watched uh, like a stop motion, like a sped up, video of a plant growing, suddenly they look really alive. You know, it's their time scale. I mean, cause they're so ancient compared to us. So, you know, we don't really understand their time scale. So to us, and you know, this is one of the issues my foraging friends and I often refer to, like, we'll talk about what we call the wall of green. So you, you walk down a path in nature with a person who's just a, like a, an average person off the street. And they don't really, not everybody's this extreme. I recently, recently met a guy that had, had just realized that there were different species of trees. Like to him, it was just trees. And it was like, wow, okay. I mean, that's really funny, but, but that's just one extreme of an actual pretty common phenomenon. And that phenomenon is this wall of green phenomenon. So, so, you know, we pull somebody out of Manhattan and we take a walk down the trail with them. And they don't see individual things very much. They just see this sort of backdrop wall of green. But to somebody who's more of a naturalist or somebody who forages a lot, it's like, I just walked past a red maple. There's a gold birch. There's a trillium. There's a bracken fern. There's a strawberry. Like, I see all these individuals. And if I derive food resources from those or medicine resources from those or flavor resources from those plants, part of my body is made from them. And so I'm in personal relationship with those species. So those species, when I see them, to, the, to another person, it's just green. To me, it's a friend. It's like, ah, I see the birch tree and I think, I can tap you for sap in the springtime and you feed me. You host mushrooms like chaga that I use for medicine. So you know, I use your bark for fire. Like These are more than just green things to me. Each species that I work with becomes like a friend. So it's kind of like, if you just plot me into Manhattan, we do a reverse experiment. I'm just seeing a wall of people, you know, but if I grew up in that neighborhood, oh, that's Janet, that's Jim, that's Bob, that's Grace. Like those are all individual people that you know, but I don't know them. So they're to me just a bunch of faces. So similarly, that's how we've gotten with nature. 
and people respond to nature as if they've never I kind of liken it to this. I've I've often joked in my workshops that the average person treats earth like they're an alien and they're when they go into nature it's like a foreign world. And if you look at a hunter-gatherer like an indigenous hunter-gatherer, especially one from the past, the average hiker dresses more like an astronaut than a hunter-gatherer. They'll be wearing the big boots with the Gore-Tex pants and the Gore-Tex jacket and the big backpack and the, you know, all this gear. Cause it's like, Oh, nature. It's like, who knows what could happen? It's a foreign world. <laughs> We've become like aliens to our own planet. And we don't know the things that live there. What's really interesting about hunter gatherers is they know all the species where they live, like all of them, you know, like it's not uncommon to know 1500 species by name, by sight, by taste, and we've gotten to where, you know, a person can knows what a raccoon and a squirrel is maybe, but, but the average person couldn't tell you like the mammals that live where they live, you know, they just wouldn't know and not any fault of their own. It's like, that's just the world we're in now. But so what I think that, sorry, I'll, I'll stop this rant here in a second, but what I think that creates is a kind of alienation so that people feel fundamentally alien in their own world that makes that sets up a dichotomy where the natural world becomes kind of hostile in a sense or foreign because they don't know anything there and they only know things that are social they only know societal things and so that makes people want to remain in the urban environment where they know things and they feel safe and comfortable and they understand things in the outside hostile world while it's full of you know, poisonous plants and things that can give you a rash. And is that safe? It's dirty. Oh my God. You know, we get to where we start to view our own planet as sort of foreign and hostile. And I don't understand how we're going to ever like save our environment by buying carbon offset credits or, you know, whatever other like sort of psychologically masturbatory thing we do. And continue on in this alienation. I think the only way we can like meaningfully really save our environment is actually by getting to know it and who lives there and starting to care about them and being like, Hey, I actually care about these species here. I actually, I, it's not just, Oh, I care about a disaster taking place 4,000 miles away. It's like, I care about the environment where I live, like these woods right here because I derive something from them and I have a meaningful reciprocal relationship there. Okay. I do have a, a question about all of that and I'll just comment really quickly because now I, I'm staring at, because in addition to the cucumbers, I have lots of other plants all around my desk. They are so warped because they grow, they, they do completely bend to get to the windows. I was wondering that if it was going to sort of kill itself by growing that way. So it, it might. Or like more like just become structurally unsound, you know, like I was, I was saying, okay, <laughs> yeah, like you know, like you end up pruning them because it's like, hey, the way you're growing, you know, I have a, a big jade that I've had for years, and sometimes it'll grow itself into a situation where it falls over and breaks, you know, or collapses if I don't prune it back, you know, so yeah, and then as the season changes, where it's it's like the light, you know, I've got some, it's in a big east facing window. Well, in the wintertime, that light, that doesn't get that much light in the day. So it starts to lean in that direction, trying to grow in that direction, you know, and then it's different in the summer. So I have to rotate it and do all those things to make sure that it doesn't end up falling over. You know, I have this one plant. This is a good example of what you just said. I don't even know what plant this is. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a perfect example. So I will... <laughs> 
in any case, this plant that I don't know what it is that I've been growing for quite a while, presumably it's supposed to grow upward. It grows down because it's on my desk and the window is behind the desk. So it grows down to like get to the window. I mean, it just looks crazy. I'm going to find out what, what, what plant it is. Okay. Yeah. What, what plant are you? Yeah. You know, and, and, and maybe a scribe. I really think you, you sort of alluded to this by talking to your plants and whatnot, but I think that we, we should make a distinction between human and like personhood. Because to me, like a codfish has personhood. When I pull a codfish 300 feet out of the water and look in its eyes, I know I'm dealing with a living entity. It's not human, but I still ascribe it personhood. I give my dogs personhood, even though they're not human. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not like foolishly like, oh, we're all the same. I know we're all radically different, but they have agency and autonomy. Your plant certainly has agency. Otherwise it couldn't reach to the light. So I think that one of the native worldviews that has been so lost by this incredibly human-centric worldview that we're living in now is that we stopped ascribing personhood to other non-human creatures, and, and instead we consider them to be resources. I think that's a very arrogant position to take. I think it's done incredible harm because we, we think very little of causing extinctions, <laughs> ultimately, like uh, some things blink out of existence that have millions and millions of years of evolutionary history and we just cause extinctions. I mean, some of the creatures that lived here in North America, just astonishing that are gone now, you know? I've thought that a lot as far as you mentioned it now, you mentioned it earlier, the disassociation we have between the food that we're eating and the way we see it and the way it looks in real life. Because I know my mind has been blown, especially you mentioned like the fish. I saw it on your show and I'll see it even when I go to Costco and I see how big the, like the salmon fillets are. I'm like, if that's how big the fillet, like I'll have a moment where I'm like, how big is the fish then? It's really interesting. And then I had a moment with my scallops and apologies to listeners because I've told this story a lot just because it fascinated me so much, but I'm a big fan of eating scallops and I, I know I've been disassociated from them. Like I just, I don't really think about them, but I had a moment where one of them was like bright orange and I assumed that it was bad. So I threw it in the trash and then I was sitting there and I was like, oh, I was like, maybe, maybe it's not bad. And so I Googled it and it turns out that that's when scallop, it's like a female scallop and that's when it's spawning. So I was like, I was like, oh, like, <laughs> you've like added an entire new layer. There's that patriarchy again. <laughs> I, know, I know. But then I was like, well, it's probably really rich then in nutrients then. Like that's probably where the color. So I, I actually pulled it out of the trash and it, it wasn't, my trash is just basically cucumber peels because this was before getting my uh, food. I, I'd actually be curious what you think about. It's my Lomi, my indoor food compressor to make dirt. Oh yeah. Interesting. I, I don't have any comments. I don't know. Okay. Um, oh, and I'm really curious how or why, like if you go to the like the meat section at the grocery store and you see like the steaks and the chicken and the chicken breasts and the fillets, is it just completely cultural that we as a species or we as humans in that store are not, quote, grossed out by it? Like we're just so we're like, oh, that's a steak. That's delicious. That's a chicken breast. That's delicious. But if we saw the steak in the context of the whole animal, suddenly it becomes people get an aversion to it. Like why? Interesting. Yeah. I want to comment on that, but I want to say first something about scallops. I don't, I don't know if you were able to see, we, we made an episode in Newfoundland, Canada. We actually didn't get the scallops ourselves. I was on the boat, but divers were going down and, and bringing scallops up and, and we were processing them on the boat. 
And I didn't know this about scallops at the time, but you know, you've got there are bivalves. You've got the two shells. The mantle is the bit of soft tissue that's right at the margin of where those two shells meet, like the lip of the the scallop. And scallops have about 120 eyes. So when they their eyes are different than ours, they're built more like I think we actually model our telescopes off the kind of eye, the lens type, or sorry, reflector type eye, mirror type eye that scallops have. But I didn't realize that. I'm you're looking at the scallop shell and you're like, wow, this thing's looking at me with 120 eyes. You know, when when you get that little piece of meat, which is the adductor muscle, so that piece of meat is the piece of meat that holds the two shells together. But there's all this other tissue that we process out when we use a scallop and the eyes are part of that. But I mean, you, you look at a scallop and it's, as it appears in the, in the store, it's very inert, but you know, when this thing's alive, boy, you guys are looking at each other. (laughs) So that's really interesting to me. But yeah, one thing I have noticed is when I'm processing an animal, especially in the beginning, since I didn't grow up doing that, so it's been quite a learning curve to do this, you know, and I've got to process quite a few different species over, over the last several years. And when there's a point of like, you know, like, let's say you're gutting. So I was getting a bear last week and it's like, you're pulling out the liver and the heart and the intestines. And, you know, like one of the first things I'll do when I, when I kill a big game animal, it's going to sound graphic. I hope it's okay to talk about, but like, well, the first thing you do is sort of grab the anus and then you take your knife and you score around the anus to free the colon there so that when you gut it later, you can pull that out from the inside. Because otherwise, you start pulling the guts out, but it's still attached at the anus. If that makes sense, the, the colon would be, right? So, so that's like one of the first things you do, right? So there's, there's shit, there's blood, there's, you know, you cut the spinal cord and cerebral spinal fluid spills out. I mean, th- this stuff is kind of gnarly at first, right? When you're, especially when you're not used to it. I'm still like not, I'm not so slick of a butcher that I'm not going to, I mean, I'm going to have blood on my shoes. I'm going to have blood on my pants. It's messy. You're going through this process and, you know, my wife is a teacher and she teaches privately. So we have a lot of kids who come to the house and some are really interested in it, but some are really don't want to see it, you know? And it's interesting to watch people's reactions, the kids or their parents or whatever, because people, there's a stage at which everybody's sort of grossed out or like it's too graphic, but there's this other stage. Once you get all that away, where all of a sudden it looks like food, you know, this happens with a chicken. It's like you, you, or a turkey, let's say I hunt a lot of turkeys. It's like you get the head off, you get the feet off and you take all that skin that's holding all the feathers off. And suddenly you're like, oh, that looks like poultry. Now I'm suddenly like hungry. And so there's a neat point where what I think is happening is there's a moment of confrontation with mortality because arguably the reason why human beings have left the natural world and created such an artificial world, the world we live in today, which is this built and even now digital environment. Like one of the biggest things, because sometimes, you know, you got to ask the question, like, why are we pushing so hard for all of this? Like, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Where does this go? Because it seems like we're willing to destroy our own home to get away from it. I don't know if you understand what I mean. It's like, we'll drain the oceans, we'll destroy the atmosphere, we'll blot out the sun, we got to get to Mars. It's like, what, what is this we're doing? Well, a big part of what I think we're doing is we are running from death, the inevitability, you know, because no one gets out alive, right? No one. So a person who's worth $80 billion 
And, you know, a person who's living in an orphanage in the third world, both have to face the same end. It's like no escape, right? So Elon Musk and Bill Gates have to face this at some point. Even with the fleets of doctors they can have and the incredible surgical interventions and all of that, they have to face this. Everyone has to face this. And everyone who's ever lived has had to face it. And that's really hard for us to look at. And we're a very death phobic culture. And we don't have a great, again, if you were a hunter-gatherer living in an unbroken chain of tradition that reaches back five, 10,000 years or, or more, you'd have a great story. Like I am going to be with my ancestors and like that can be very comforting. But we used to have stories like that, but we've gotten rid of them in the name of science, right? So now nobody knows. It's just like, oh yeah, you just die and that's the end and that we don't even explore it. And, and we can't explore it because we're too triggered by it. It's sort of like a therapist told me once that the hardest thing for to study in psychology is grief because the people studying grief can't face their own grief enough to study grief. So no one touches the topic. It becomes taboo because no one can handle looking at it themselves. So it's like that with death. Most people can't, even researchers have a hard time looking at it because it brings you face to face with your own mortality. So I think when we're butchering an animal, what's happening is oh my God, that's me on the inside. <laughs> I have guts just like, that's what I am. Like, that's all I am. It's like meat. <laughs> it's really quite staggering. You're like, wow, I could, I, I will die too. And this is what I'm like inside. And all this just goes back into the earth and there's nothing. It's like, wow, that's a lot to deal with. So I think there's like a gruesomeness. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see. And then all of a sudden it becomes food. And then the food represents life. And now I can look at it again. So, you know, I find all that, I think there's just some, some deep human psychology at work here. You know, it's not as simple as like, blood's gross. It's like, mm, it's a lot more than that going on. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. 
melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I am so fascinated by this. I mean, I guess that really is what we're trying to do with escaping death, especially with the concept of trying to achieve immortality and uploading consciousness and, you know, Neuralink and like integrating ourselves with synthetic existences. It's very scary, actually. Well, actually, that speaks to the point about <laughs> about our thoughts surrounding all of it. It's also interesting because, like you say, it's really scary, and I would agree with you. And almost everybody I talk to agrees with that. So it's like, well, then where? Who's? Why is this happening? Like, who's? Who doesn't? Somebody doesn't think it's scary because they're pushing so hard for it that it's happening. So it's like somewhere in the world are people who are like, no, this is the best idea ever. And it's like, I don't know anybody like that. So I'm like, who, who is that? Who, who thinks that's great? Do you think, because there's so many different cultures and going back to what you're talking about earlier with how once you gain this sort of language, like you don't see all the things in the world until you gain a language in your head to see them. Like you learn about the different plants and you learn about the different things. And so we see what we have, you know, in a way, learn to see. This is kind of a like a question that's all over the place. But I was just wondering, so because presumably each of these different hunter-gatherer societies then would have the language to see what they, you know, the world that that they're in. If you were to take a hunter-gatherer and like plop them in an industrialized food grocery store in the middle of the aisles. Like, so then would they, would everything just look the same to them? Like, would they not really like see things? (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And then like, and on top of that, is there something common in all of these hunter gatherer societies, like a, a language underneath that, that we don't have that does allow them to actually explore any environment that they're in, in a different way. Or do you think each, each different society has the language to see like what they're in at that moment. Yeah, I'd say yes to all of the above. I'll I'll answer my I'll speculate the best I can because I'm certainly not fully qualified for the question. But I had a friend who just before cannabis got legalized went to jail for cannabis. And after a couple of years in prison, here's a funny little anecdote on the side. He got out and he like just before it got legalized. Right before. And, and, and what happened was- That's a bummer. Yeah. Well, it gets worse because it gets worse because the, the state didn't want to take his, the case. So they were investigating him and the, and the state didn't want to take the case. And so the feds said, well, we'll take the case. And so it ended up being a federal thing. So we went to federal prison. So shortly after it was legalized. But it was really funny because we were friends in the raw food, health food scene and had worked together a lot. And he had on, you know, health food stuff. You know, he was, calls me, he's like just getting out and he's like, hey man, like what's- what's different in the last five years? Like what's changed? What do I need to know? And I was like thinking about it. It's like, well, not much. I mean, it's the same social media platforms. Like there's a new iPhone or whatever, but like not, you know, and then I was like, oh, bacon's a health food now. (laughs) Like since you went in, you know what I mean? Like it's very funny, like how things change, you know? But anyway, my point of bringing him up was he talked about leaving the prison. His family went to pick him up and they stopped at a gas station and he said when he went in, the all the bright coloring of the packaging of the food in the sort of, you know, convenience store was so overwhelming to his senses. He hadn't seen anything like that, that kaleidoscope of intense color and branding. So I kind of imagine 
that for the hunter-gatherer, it would almost be the opposite thing we were talking about. Because when we walk through nature, we mute it out. But I have a feeling, just my guess would be, that it would be massively overstimulating. Like we have gotten attenuated to incredibly high levels of sensory stimulation and overload. You know, but even so, still a lot of us feel it. It's like you go to the mall or something and you get out. It's like, man, I feel jangled a little bit. There's so many things like vying for my attention. So I bet it would be pretty mind blowing <laughs> to see the way our foods are. And I, I, I do wonder sort of how they would. Now, here's one thing that I, I bet you, you know, when you look at what happened when Europeans arrived here and this continent was populated by, you know, the First Nations people here hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I think something like 500 nations. They in some ways rejected our life way, but there was a few things they really, really wanted. Those were metal tools and metal pots. So can you imagine, you know, for 10,000 years, you're cutting trees down with stone adzes, you know, Bill Schindler type of stuff. Like he loves that kind of stuff, right? Like very cool to do those primitive skills, but you can imagine it's like how, when you first see a metal ax, the first time you use one and you're like, this thing doesn't break. I can sharpen. It's super sharp. I can cut down trees easily. No, I'm not hitting it with a sharpened stone. And then the other thing is when you're relying on clay pots, you know, and they fall and break, frequently, <laughs> you know, you're like a metal pot. It's a really valuable thing. So those were extremely exciting. And I imagine that there could be mixed feelings about food because in some ways it's like very convenient to have food you don't have to process. I bet there'd be a little bit of excitement around that. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because even though those foods are low nutrient and even though those foods are pretty desperate, I think that, yeah, there's a part of us that is programmed to look for less work. I mean, that's why it's so hard to, you know, I don't know if you work out, but it's like, for those of us who like to train, you know, how much is like, is how much of it is keeping the motivation because you have a body that's biologically programmed to look to avoid work. Because in the natural world for millions of years of evolution, you're trying to conserve energy. And then you also have a body that's programmed to look for sugar and fat. And so when you're in an environment with plenty of free sugar and fat and a, and a six million year craving for those things, you know, and all of a sudden it's freely available. And if you want, you can just lay around all the time. These are like, <laughs> this is what human beings have been looking for. That's why we created it. Right. But then once you have it, boy, it's like really hard to get yourself to do anything. So, you know, hence all the struggle to control. I mean, you know, what's like, what's the really fundamental to, to health and fitness? It's like diet and exercise. And those are like, why are they so hard? It's because, you know, your evolutionary program to avoid exercise and to eat as much food as you can when you get it, you know? So we're dealing with like forces, you know, ancient forces that are so much bigger than our like little, you know, internal motivator or whatever. Oh no, 100%. And I mean, I like, outwardly, like with the exercise, <laughs> I do M-Sculpt where I just go lay on a machine and it, you know, exercises my muscles for me. And then- Come on, really? Oh yeah. It's amazing though. It like, it like really builds muscle. And then I can do like work calls during it. <laughs> it basically creates the equivalent of, like if you do the biceps, for example, it creates 20,000 contractions in your biceps- in 30 minutes. And it's a deeper contraction than you could do consciously because it, it 
like muscle fiber recruitment than you can do. Yeah. And it, it has, it like breaks up the lactic acid so you don't get as much delayed onset muscle soreness. It's great. We're going to have those, we'll have those on the ships to Mars then. I know. And then like I do my, I just got my Carol AI bike. So it's like for my cardiovascular workout, it's six to eight minutes and it, Actually, it talks to me that the narration. Have you have you seen this? The Carol AI bike. No, I have a friend who who also does the Insculpt thing. Who was just telling me about this bike as well. Oh, see, <laughs> the people who do the Insculpt do the Carol. I well, I don't actually I don't know how you would how you would feel about this. Did the person tell you about the narration that the bike has? I don't think so. It's an eight minute program, and it it pretends like you're a hunter gatherer. So like it, it talks to you. It uses personalized resistance in the pedals to to give you the quote, perfect re-hit workout. But the narration of it, which I love, because it has music options, but I like the narration. So it talks to you. It's like, you're a hunter-gatherer. You're walking, you know, in the woods and and you're breathing. And, and so that's when you're like pedaling slow. And then it's like, and then it's like, what is that you see out of the corner of your eye? And then it's like a tiger. And then it like <laughs> flashes red and it's like, run, it like screams at you. And then it's like, you're safe. That's neat. So, so in a way, what it's doing is like tapping into really primal. It's like getting into your amygdala and like firing off your like sympathetic nervous system. That's really, I mean, it's clever. It's clever. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, what's interesting, and it kind of speaks to what you were just talking about, how we're not programmed to just go and do exercise. Interestingly, I find that that track, the narration track, where I'm pretending like I'm a hunter gatherer, way more easy to engage with the program than listening to music, because then I'm. I'm actually enacting these movements for the reason these movements were made to be enacted. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting. So yeah, I'm into CrossFit. So it's sort of like the other end of the spectrum. Cause it's like extreme work, you know, but like, it's the same, it's the same thing. I mean, I like it cause it's very group based. And so I like sharing the workload with other people, which again is like engaging some of those ancient, right. It's like communal in that sense. But uh, yeah, like we are made to have, extreme bursts of anaerobic exercise followed by fairly like restful leisurely moments, you know? So it's like, I think that's one of the hardest things. I mean, you know, you, you coming from the biohacking world know this well, but it's like that kind of, it's almost cliche now, but, but we're living under like constant stress rather than intermittent stress. And, you know, so the tiger is very scary. I mean, man, you, do you know much about Pleistocene America? Do you know like what this continent was like 10,000 years ago? Say it again. Pleistocene. So we're in the Holocene now. Some people say we're in the Anthropocene, which is the first age of the earth where human construction is like going to be a lair in the archaeological record. But our modern era is typically, you know, that's controversial, but typically called the Holocene. But it started probably 10 to 14,000 years ago. But just prior to that was the end of the last ice age. And that's that was the Pleistocene. Like North America, just as an example, we had multiple species of, you know, we had a, the American lion, we had the American cheetah here. This is while there's people here, you know, we have three species of elephant here. We have uh, several species of camel, giant ground sloths. So we're talking, you know, the size of a F-150 or something, you know, these giant sloths. I mean, this whole continent was covered in massive megafauna, sort of like what's in Africa still in the Serengeti. So, you know, the short-faced bear was twice the size of our biggest grizzlies, you know? So, I mean, this continent was, you can imagine for the people just living here in America at the time, there were some pretty harrowing moments. <laughs> so now we're in this place where, you know, we, we deal with tons of stress, but we don't actually have that anaerobic outlet. So when you get on that bike and you, you give it for whatever amount of time at your highest heart rate and output, you are like soothing an evolutionary need. 
obviously without that, we just decline, you know, our cardiovascular system declines. So anyway, I think that's cool you're doing. I was thinking after doing it that this should be a whole thing. Like there should be an app that maybe for your workouts creates a uh, role play type situation. Then you could just like go outside and listen to it and it would create a narrative. And then you would like run and walk accordingly to whatever you're hearing, like a zombie. Fully artificial reality. Yeah. It's so funny, right? Yeah. Like like a zombie apocalypse, you know, and it'll be like. Yeah, sure. I bet that that's all coming with the AI stuff, you know, with virtual reality stuff and the augmented reality stuff. Like I'm sure that's probably the future of exercise. If this, if this track, if we continue on this track, you know. Actually. So, okay. Here's a question for you because as mentioned in the beginning and throughout this show, you do have a TV show. So I'm super curious. And I thought about this. I was going to ask you this anyways, but then I thought about it when you were commenting on going to Whole Foods and like the bright lights and, you know, the overstimulation. Creating a TV show about all of this that we're talking about, presumably, and, and you do it very well, you want to capture, I'm assuming that in its most you want to present to the world what it really looks like in its most natural way. But a TV show is very, it's speaking of things we don't see. It's kind of like, it's kind of like with a steak, we just see the steak. We don't see everything else with a TV show. We just see the TV show. We don't see all the cameras and the lights and the editing. And I don't know how many people, when you're on set, like how big is your, like the production team? Yeah. Well, let me give you a little backstory because I'm a, I'm a complete industry outsider. I didn't come through, you know, I don't have an agent or a manager. Or I'm not, I didn't come to television on a television track, let's say. So back in probably about 2018 or so, 2017 maybe, I had somebody approach me who was a, you know, fairly new cinematographer, videographer, who was like, saw what I was doing, you know, hunting and gathering as a sort of, because I was a diet, nutrition, biohacking type guy. You know, I've spoken with Dave, I've spoken at Dave Asprey's event twice I would always go to all those like conferences, you know, so I was like part of that scene, you know, I know a lot of the people in that world and I was always promoting lifestyle stuff. And, and what was happening was I was promoting the side of biohacking that is the stuff that we are, you know, it's like the sun is a great way to replicate the idea that in nature, sometimes it's really freaking hot, you know, and the cold plunges because like sometimes in nature, it's really freaking cold. And I was always like, what, what are the things that are missing? Cause we've left nature and how do we put those back in our life? And that's how I got to hunting and gathering. Cause eventually with chasing the food down being like, well, I want this food in its more natural form or like, you know, start off eating hamburger helper, like I mentioned earlier, and then like working my way up to grass fed and now I'm going to the farm to get it. But it's like, wait a second, what's a cow? Like, what's a cow? What do cows come from? There's no natural cows. So what do cows come from? The longer you trace that stuff, eventually you're like, man, I'm going to have to go hunt this stuff. <laughs> you know? So that's how I got here. So I had a buddy say, hey, do you want to film some of this? And I, I was like, you know, I'm pretty new at this. I don't really want to film it. But he's like, no, we should do it. That, that'll be interesting to people. So we made the season one of Wild Fed. I, I was just going to, you know, put it online for my audience, my online audience as an influencer, which we did and sold that show for like 50 bucks a season, you know, for anybody who wanted to watch it. And that was great. And then when COVID happened, there was like a huge void in television because the networks would have to quarantine a whole cast and crew for a week in a hotel. Then they'd go on location and have to be isolated. And then at the end of the production, they'd have to put them back in a hotel for another week before sending them home. So the costs were really high. So TV wasn't being made. And so somebody approached me and said, hey, let me pitch your show. And they did. And it got picked up. And 
I thought it was just kind of a fluke, you know, but then we got, they asked us for a second season and a third season. Now we're filming the fourth season. So I kind of came at this very obliquely. So I don't know what it's like to be on big sets or, you know, have a, I don't have a showrunner or a big crew. So it's typically me and one camera, if I'm hunting two cameras when I'm foraging, and then, you know, I have two producers I work with out in New York who occasionally come on trips, maybe one or two episodes a season, three episodes a season or something, and, and they'll come along to support. One of them's a camera guy. So so we're a small crew. And when you're hunting, you know, I'm like, it's hard to have camera guys because they're looking in the camera, right? So they're not seeing the twig they're about to step on. They're not realizing how much they're moving. You know, I'm always having to camouflage these guys or like, put gaff tape all over their cameras where there's little lights and trying to get them to sneak around. You know, it can be very challenging, but we keep it really small, really tight, really light and very personal with the people we work with. So I don't know what other TV shows are like, but I think we're probably pretty different. And that allows us to have a really small footprint and to present things as they actually happen and to develop real relationships with the people that we feature as guests, which is really important to me. You know, because at some point I'm not going to have the show anymore. I want to have that network of people that I've connected with and hunted with and foraged with. So we keep it as real as we can. And, you know, we don't, there's, we're not faking any of it, you know? So, I mean, occasionally we have to go get pickups of something like, you know, hey, I got to go sit in a tree stand while they fly the drone because I can't do that. I can't fly a drone when I'm really hunting. That'd be illegal. So, you know, we have to do little things like that, but we don't fake anything that you see. So it's all real, but very small crew. You know, it's not like there's, it's not like, you know, I'm there with my rifle about to take a shot. And if you could turn the camera around, you'd see like 50 people and lights. No, there's not nothing like that, you know, big trailers or anything. We don't have any of that going on. It's at this point, I'm sure, as you know, the gear's gotten so small and so light, you know, it's really easy to like two cameras, you know, you don't need a sound guy if you're doing the kind of thing we're doing. So pretty simple operation. First of all, I love that you define, that's the way I define biohacking because I get asked all the time, what is biohacking? The definition that I provide is, honestly, I see it as a way of hacking our modern lifestyle to ironically return us back to the way we were before technology. So I find it to be a very ironic concept, actually. And then th those are the exact examples I use. I'm like, like sauna, we're actually like, you know, and sauna and cold exposure, we're actually exposing ourselves to these environments that we're just not getting in our modern, you know, day lifestyle. Right. But in like in a concentrated dose, right? Because it's like, you know, because I don't have time to go six hours of it. So it's like, cool, the sauna, 30 minutes or the cold plunge, like five minutes or whatever it is. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I always say to people too, it's like, you can't hack your way to wholeness. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, that's not actually how that works. So yeah, I think all, all we can do is try to recreate optimal conditions for ourselves. But can I add to that? There's this thing though, too, that's important to remember, which is, I don't want to sound like my, this is my only angle, because if you take a lion on the Serengeti and you take a lion in the zoo, the lion in the zoo is going to live twice as long because he's not going to get killed by another male who's challenging him for the pride. He's not going to be getting scarred and bruised up. He's not going to have times of starvation. He's not going to be exposed to the elements constantly. That's a hard life. Like the, the life in the wild is a hard life. The life in the zoo, you live a lot longer. You are, it's not rough and tumble. You don't take all the bruises. The problem is you're in captivity. Like that's the problem. It's a prison, right? So there's some, there's something that I think we need to achieve here, which is like, how do we get all the exposure to the wild that we need and not just so here's the thing about the sauna and the cold plunge. They're very sterile. It's not like the real thing. 
you know how I was talking about with the food, you can have relationships with the organisms that you eat. That's really, so it's really good to eat a good, clean diet. Like that's awesome. But that doesn't mean you have a relationship with any of those things, you know? So we can biohack it all, but that doesn't mean we've actually made meaningful connections to the rest of the world. And so there's something about the real wild that's really important, but that life will take you out a lot earlier and you get exposed to a lot of parasites. You get exposed to a lot of tough elements. It's very hard on your body. So it's like, how do we have both where we can, you know, we don't want to live on a factory farm, right? And I, I worry that the world we've created is a human factory farm. And that instead of raising us for meat, we it's, we're basically being raised for tax dollars, right? We're being sort of, that's our produce is we, we live on like some people live in CAFO lots, the poor, let's say the working class poor. And some people live on free range farms like the elites, but everybody's like living on a kind of farm. What would be nice is something more like a zoo where what we do, because in a zoo, you're going to try to create an environment that looks like the animal's natural habitat, you know, still going to have fences, but at least maybe there's a little waterfall and there's some plants that are from that animal's environment. And you know what I'm saying? Like on a farm, you're going to just feed the cow corn. But in a, in a zoo, you're going to try to feed that animal the stuff that it really eats. So a zoo is kind of like the biohacking side, whereas like the farm is more like the standard American lifestyle, right? And we're living more like that. So it's like, we got to find some kind of balance because we can't all, you know, 7 billion people can't go hunt and gather. That's not going to happen. We just eat through the whole world overnight. Not to mention we don't have, we're not robust enough. If we want to have the longevity component we need to avoid all of the bumps and bruises that come from a wildlife too, you know? So I don't know if that makes sense, but there's sort of like a balance to be had in all of this. Cause I'd like to live a really long time. Like if, if I could live a hundred years, I, that would be wonderful. I really like my life. You know, I'd like to keep going for a long time, but you know, if I actually lived outside in a wiki up or something, you know, and only hunted and gathered and made all my own tools and stuff, like I'm probably not going to live that long. Cause that's a hard life. And kind of with the zoo example, maybe like the even, well, I don't know. I'd be curious how you feel about this. How do you feel about like Disney World, like Animal Kingdom, where they are making it more immersive? Like you're like going on the safari, like in the the whole world that they've created. Or do you think that's highly controlled and industrialized? I haven't been. Oh, you haven't been? You haven't been to Animal Kingdom? Oh, my goodness. I would be so interested to hear what you think after you go. Can I bring camouflage and a rifle? You let me out of the truck. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, oh my God. Okay. Cause they, um, it's really immersed. It's like a zoo, but it's much more immersive. So like they have the Kilimanjaro safari. Yeah. More like a, an animal park. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then like they're one of their hotels, I think the animal kingdom lodge, there's actually like outside your window, there's, it's like on a safari type feeling. One thing I'll say, I don't know how those are, but I'll just give, you know, per, from personal experience. And this happens, this is a huge issue at Yellowstone, which I haven't visited. So I'm not speaking from experience on that, but, but I, I have been up to Grand Canyon a bunch of times. And sometimes the elk will walk right up to the visitor lodges, you know? And so you'll, you'll have these big, you know, buck elk with like, you know, eight foot antlers that are standing there. And the problem is that it gives people, and this will happen at Yellowstone because I'm going to put this another way and then come back to that. If I tell somebody I'm going to go squirrel hunting, that's one of my favorite things to do and one of my favorite foods, gray squirrel. 
but people associate squirrels with those squirrels they see in the park. And so one is like in the park, they're like, they're so cute. And another thing is like, that's not fair. They're, they're just there. They're so, it must be so easy. It's like, no, man, you come into the woods with me hunting and you will see how wily squirrels are. They know you're, I mean, come on, they're being hunted all day by everything. Coyotes are hunting them. Foxes are hunting them. Fishers are hunting them. Martins are hunting them. All kinds of avian predators are hunting them. They know the difference between a person walking through the woods with a pair of beats on listening to their music and a person who's stalking through the woods. They, they know the game, right? Does that make sense? So people will be like, oh, you want to get a squirrel? Just come to my house. It's like, no, when you go into the woods, you're on fair playing field with these animals. So similarly, somebody goes to Yellowstone and they're like, man, they just see the animals there kind of like how they would be in one of those kids' movies. They appear so docile. That's because they know they're not being hunted there. Generationally, they've learned this is a, this is a sanctuary. So is, your, so is the park. So the squirrel that comes right up to you or the, the pigeon that comes and takes you know, bread out of your hand is a pigeon that's been living in a place where no one is trying to hunt it. So it gives the impression, oh my God, these innocent animals just want to be our friends. And it's like, well, that's not how it is in the real world. These are artificial environments that we've carved off where people can't do those activities, if that makes sense. So in the natural world, animals are they're very hard. It's very hard to hunt, you know, especially for new people. It's very hard. Animals understand completely what you do, what you're doing. As soon, and you can't help it because when you go into the woods to hunt, the, the hunting program software in your body is so ancient. Everybody just suddenly knows what to do. You start using hand signals instead of talking. You whisper in the lowest voice you can. You walk several inches shorter in a bit of a crouch. Like all these things just naturally start happening because this is like programmed into you. And so animals recognize those patterns as predatory. And so the average person who only sees these wild animals when they go to parks or to safaris or whatever, these are animals that are being cared for by humans. And so humans are non-threatening to them. So they behave very differently. So, you know, it's kind of like, I remember in the, in the streets of Cusco, Peru, walking up this endless staircase and coming upon a, like a street dog. And I just love dogs, you know, and I go over to pet this dog and it tries to bite me. And it's like, oh yeah, this is not, that's a feral dog, Daniel. That's not like a pet dog. <laughs> you know, I'm used to a pet dog is going to respond to people very differently than a dog that's actually fighting for survival every day. If that makes sense. So, you know, when you're around these semi-domesticated or tamed animals, it really changes people's perception of what the natural world is like. And so in a way, I don't like that kind of stuff because people end up having this sort of disnified view of what the planets actually like. And it's a, it's a major mistake. It's, it's just not accurate, you know? So fascinating. It reminds me also as well, I don't know if you went to Florida growing up, if that was one of the things you did. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New England, yeah. So, you know, there's the whole thing about do not feed the alligators, it changes them. Approach people. Yeah. And then it makes them associate humans with food. And so, you know, the reason we likely have alligator attacks is just because they're associating, they've like lost their fear. Yeah. And people are food and we forget that too. 
because we live like we're gods, right? Like, oh yeah, we're gods on this planet. It's like, no, actually for a long time, we were also food. And, and in some cases we still are. And that's important to remember. And, and then also just knowing, like I've had people say to me, you know, I've learned like one of the most delicate things is posting online about bears. I mean, people are kind of okay when you eat a deer, a deer, when you look at a deer, you kind of know like that's a prey animal, but a bear is like, it gets really intimate for people. Plus, you know, Paddington bear and Winnie the Pooh and, you know, teddy bears and all the talking bears and, you know I mean? Like the Berenstein bears, like people get, it's pretty emotional for people. So I've had people be like, you, you know, how could you kill that bear? That bear had a family <laughs> that bear, and it's like, okay, you don't even know what you're talking about. Cause bears don't live in families and a female bear with cubs, you know, I was watching one last week with three cubs. She can't let her cubs be around a male bear because the male bear will kill and eat her cubs. That's what he's, he's looking for female bears with cubs so he can eat her cubs and then push her, push her back into estrus because while she's raising those cubs, she's not fertile or receptive, sexually receptive. So if he can eat her cubs, he'll get all that protein because a male bear is trying to grow and that's his main priority. He needs to get big because that's his only way to be dominant in the, in the, you know, mating hierarchy. But he didn't live with the wife bear and their kids and work like that. He's a predator of kids, even his own kids. She knows that. She wants nothing to do with a male bear except for those rare moments where she's sexually receptive. But people, because they, you know, growing up reading Berenstein Bears and Mama Bear lives with, you know, the two kid bears and the dad bear and they go on adventures and whatnot, people internalize that as reality somehow, you know, these Bambi type stories. And, and, that stuff has given that we have been hunters, you know, it's not like there were some hunters, but there was also some gatherers. It's like, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we've always been hunters. Like the first humans were hunters because before our species, the species that we came from were hunters. Like we've only ever been hunters. We've sort of almost like turned our back on our own biological biography and then like manufactured these stories about nature that aren't accurate, but nobody can test them because they don't actually, they can't test their hypothesis because they don't go out there and do it, you know? So these things, they like pervade people's minds and then pervert how we understand the natural world and our place in the natural world. That's crazy. And I think a lot of reptiles eat their babies as well, I think. And going back to the alligators, I will literally... I will just sit and reflect on this concept that there are these massive, almost, I think, I don't know if they're prehistoric, maybe beings that are just like could kill us and they're massive and they're, I mean, almost like dinosaurs and they're, they're just in our environment and we're, and we don't even like think about it. Like I just, I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated by this. I killed a pretty big one in the very first episode of the show we ever made. I was invited to South Carolina where there was a guy who managed a wetland area and he would be given permits for gators that got to a size, cause this area was recreated in by people. So when a gator got to the size that it could kill and eat a person, like his job would be to remove those animals. And I wanted to eat one, you know? So we took, uh, I think it was about 10 and a half feet. The size of that animal up close and in person was incredible. Now I've also learned though about alligators because you look at them and they seem so cold, but they actually have a pretty elaborate mating ritual. They have, they show quite a bit of affection to one another in ways you wouldn't expect, like with almost like embrace 
they sort of serenade one another. There, there's actually quite a bit. So that's this other interesting thing because because people who don't hunt will imagine. There's this thing where it's almost funny. They almost imagine that hunters like hate the animals they kill. You know, like how could you do that? Like how could you do it? And it's like hunters love these animals way more than <laughs> than the people who don't hunt. It's like the, the non-hunter, what do they know about a deer? You know, like, what do they even know about a deer? It's like nothing. But the hunter's got like the deer sticker on his truck and he's got the deers all over the walls and he's got like the, the deer, you know, like phone protector case. And you know what I mean? Like obsessed with them. They love them. And those aren't mutually exclusive. Like I can think alligators are amazing and I can still eat one. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't think you hate cucumbers. And that's why you'll, you're willing to predate upon them. You must really hate cucumbers. You're like, no, I grow them from the seed. Like, I think they're amazing, you know? So that, that's just, there's this funny anthropomorphic thing that we do because I think we associate it with like almost like a war. Like, well, you must hate those people because you're killing them. It's like, well, that's war, but this isn't war. This is like actually just food acquisition. Like, it would be really foolhardy to think that lions hate gazelles. Be like, no, I'm pretty sure lions love gazelles, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that they're in a they're in a beautiful symbiotic relationship with one another. Nobody thinks they hate them. That's ridiculous. Of course, that's ridiculous. Like, what do you love more than the species you eat? I mean, like, you rely on them to be alive. You ever watch the show Alone? No. That is that is a really worth your time. You know, there's so many like hokey survival shows, but there's one good one. It's called Alone, and the people who are in it, the contestants, have to film themselves. And so they go into nature for, you know, it's like a competition. Everybody's given a different spot, usually in some really brutal environment like the Yukon. They have to see how long they can survive there and they can all tap out, you know, and the last person who stays out the longest, you know, it'll be like 60 to 100 days. Well, the it's really interesting when they first start to like kill a squirrel or something. I mean, when somebody, because these people are start starving, you know, so they're, they lose 30, 40 pounds while they're out there doing the show and, and they get real hungry. And you see these people who've, these are people who hunt, you know, but they kill a squirrel in that. Cause when I kill a deer, I'm not starving. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got like freezers full of meat. Like I'm doing just fine. In fact, like I could eat a lot less and be healthier and happier. So yeah, I'm not starving. So when you watch somebody kill like a squirrel who's starving and you see them cry and express their gratitude, I mean, you really see like, okay, no, this cycle of life thing is real. It's just that we've interrupted it, but there's no animosity towards the things you kill. I mean, maybe that's how people feel about wasps or something, like when they <laughs> you hit them with raid or something like that. But, but in a hunting context, most hunters obsessively love the animals that they hunt. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, 
and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes, all the time, with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Well, I mean, even with the wasp comment, that's an interesting commentary because a lot of people who have this ideology about, you know, the the anti-killing of animals, that whole idea, they're usually okay with like killing insects. I never see somebody who's like, won't kill a mosquito that bites them. I think there's a really interesting thing there because, and and I've had some interesting debates about this, you know, curious how you feel about it, but do you think that every life is equal or do you think there's a hierarchy of life? So let me give you an example. Like, is a single-celled protozoan and a mosquito and a bison and a blue whale, are they equal because each one has the sacred whatever spark of life is? Or is the whale more important because it lives so much longer, it gathers so much more carbon together, it, it is a resource for so many more things when it dies? Like, Is every life got the same value or do lives have more or less value based on like their size or their composition or whatever, you know? That is a heavy question. It's an important one, right? Because you think how many mosquitoes you kill in a day. I mean, you drive somewhere and then you like get out and you look at your grill of your car. You're like, wow, I've just been slaughtering all day. Look at all these dead bugs. I think it just is. Like I almost think it's detached from morality in a way. Like it just is these different levels of life. So I I don't really, I'm not nihilistic. I think it all has meaning, but I, I feel like it all has, like it just, it just is. I don't really know how to say it any other way. I'm just thinking about it. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Sometimes I think 
because I wouldn't want somebody to think like I was less valuable than a bigger person or a bigger animal. You know, I mean, if we were in a realm of giants, I wouldn't want it to be like, oh, well, you can just slap me dead like a mosquito. You know, like uh, I want to think that, you know, especially for people who have a spiritual bend, it seems like life is sacred. So all in that regard, all living things are sacred and, you know, because life is, seems to me to be sacred. It's like, what is this? I mean, I spent my whole life asking, like, what is this? Like, I feel like no one talks about it. It's like, wait a second. We're just conscious. I don't remember where, how I got here. I have no idea where I'm going after. I just suddenly I'm here and I'm just living out this life. And like, what is this miracle? Because we don't have any idea where life comes from or what it is. You know, I know in the middle of my heart is a little thing called the sinoatrial node that produces an electrical spark that fires the whole thing. You know, like, where does that come from? What's that spark? Like, that's amazing to me. It's magic. You know, it's sacred. At the same time, I don't really feel anything when I kill a mosquito. In fact, maybe even some joy. It's like I was sitting in a tree stand the other day and I was just like, how many of these mosquitoes can I kill that are attacking me? You know, but when I kill an animal that's like a mammal that has like eyes that I can look into, I feel sad. Yeah. I feel sad, you know? So, or like when, you know, like a dog, like how I feel about my dogs, like, man, I mean, I feel something happened to one of my dogs. I would just be so emotionally devastated, you know? So, so I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I think the people who are against other people killing animals don't really take the time to think about what they're made of, which is bodies of a whole lot of other things, you know? And the other thing that's really interesting is like one of my favorite hunts that I do is I night hunt on a farm, a vegetable farm here in Maine, because they get certain number of permits because deer destroy their, um, they grow pumpkins and a deer, (laughs) what the deer will do is they'll go over to a pumpkin and they'll take a bite out of it. And they just go to the next pumpkin, take another bite and they've ruined (laughs) acres of pumpkins, you know? And so they'll get permits from the warden service and I'll go in there and shoot deer at night. And it's a great way for me to fill my freezer with venison in the, in the summertime, but they're producing food that vegetarians eat with all that smugness of like, I only eat vegetables, you murderers. And it's like, you have any animals are killed on that farm? You know, like we're killing so many animals. Like, what do you think they're doing to the groundhogs that live there? You know, just letting them symbiotically like coast? No, they're killing them. And the other thing is, what would that farm be if it wasn't a farm? It would be habitat for wildlife. And we're removing that habitat. When they roll through those cornfields to harvest with those giant combines, how many rabbits are going up through those combines and being killed? Like dozens and dozens and dozens nobody's hands are clean of this, you know? So it's, it's just far more complicated than I think people realize. I do completely respect people's opinions and beliefs. And I really want everybody to believe whatever they want to believe. I don't, I don't have any intention of convincing people to believe other things. You're not going to become a warlord. Yeah. Just believe what you want. I just like thinking about things and exploring concepts. So people who, especially like veganism and people who have this idea of not killing animals. I don't know how you argue against what you just said. Like if you just put on paper the number of quote living beings killed in like a regenerative agriculture situation compared to a farm where they're, you know, creating plant-based meat, like the amount of things that are killed for that, you know, that that industrialized farm is massive. Like just as compared to the regenerative situation. 
And then if you think about like mushroom, like there's like mushrooms that are carnivores that are eating things that are alive. And it's like, so is, is the mushroom murderer? <laughs> yeah. Why is the mushroom, like the mushroom's doing that? Going back though to your question about the, this haunts me. <laughs> I started thinking about this a lot with the whole like talk about aliens because say we look at like the bumblebees and like a bumblebee hive or like ants and like the whole ant colony. We see it from the outside and and we feel that they, I mean, I don't know, but it seems like they're not super, like the ant colony, there seems like they're not super aware of the entire world outside of them. But they don't, they don't, they don't know about Shakespeare or. I mean, they like see us, but they don't have any idea about all of this. But at the same time, they have this whole world and they're like communicating and talking. So they're all in their whole world and that's their reality. And I don't know what it's like to be an ant. Oh, which by the way, the, the best definition I ever heard of consciousness was that it's something is conscious. If you can know what it is like to be like that thing. So like a rock, you wouldn't be like, I wonder what it's like to be a rock. So a rock is probably not con. No, like I've like that like stuck with me. <laughs> but like a cucumber, like I wonder what it's like to be a cucumber. <laughs> but, um, in any case, so going back to the ants, so like I just I'm really fascinated because I'm like we have this view of that that ant colony, and we think we're like so evolved and we have this whole idea, whole idea. But maybe we're like an ant colony to like an alien population looking at us, and and there's like just this whole other. I mean, I don't know how you feel about aliens, but maybe I'm just like this hierarchy of species concept. I don't know where I'm going with this. I just think about this a lot. <laughs> I mean, you just put it in, and that was a pretty forgiving way to put it because you just look at how Europeans felt about native peoples when they came here too. So it's like, it's very easy for us to other, even other humans, right? So it's like, it's very easy to talk about it with ants. It's like, oh yeah, I mean, you just step on the colony and you're like, Maybe you didn't do it on purpose, but you don't also feel that bad about it either, you know? Or like, like we wipe out entire colonies. That's like wiping out a whole world. It's like I said, when you open, you eat, sit down to a bowl of of sauerkraut. I mean, this is like New York City of bacteria. Like, think about how many organisms are that is. It's astonishing to think about. You know, it's like the stars in the sky. But, but yeah, like the idea of an alien culture treating, seeing us the way we might see an inconvenient population of something else is pretty terrifying. It's also, I notice it's in some of the assessments of the government when they talk about this stuff. That's like one of their concerns. Oh, I could talk about aliens for days. Another question about your show. So do you write all of the narration? I do, yeah. I was okay, I was wondering. And no one tells me anything. It's so interesting. Again, I'm such an outsider. I don't have anyone. I've never once had anybody even ask me to change a word of it. I've had one time where we were asked to edit. I'd shot a bison on the Standing Rock Reservation with a Lakota friend of mine, Dakota friend of mine. When the bison went down, tears started coming out of its eyes. It's just a biological reaction, but it was very moving. My wife was with me and she and I approached that bison and my Dakota friend started singing songs in Dakota, like prayers for the bison. So he's singing and tears are coming out of this bison's eyes. And my wife and I leaned down and put our hands on his head. And it's just this like really powerful moment. I mean, I'm sad that we had to cut it, but the concern was like, hey, if we put this out, it's going to end up a PETA commercial, you know, like really careful of that. So there's a lot of stuff we can't show. Unfortunately, I would like to show everything because I think the graphic stuff even is important. But that was the one time the network was like, hey, we're worried this is going to end up being used against 
hunting. And it's like, oh yeah, fair enough. That's, that's a good point. But other than that, I, in, you know, four seasons, I have never had anyone ask me to change anything. That actually goes perfectly into what I was going to ask, which you sort of just captured. When you have this experience with each episode and where you're going and what you hunted and what you gathered and then the whole experience, because there's the editing process and you're writing the narration, does the story of what happened pretty organically just transpire to creating that episode? Or is there any, because I know you just said that you, you know, you try to present it the way it happened. Is there also some sort of artistic flair where you focus on what you want the story to be from that experience? Mm, That's a really good question. There's certain things where you just can't show it that are, that happen on on hunts. Sometimes really awful stuff happens. I mean, you can imagine it's like, it's like anything. It's like sports, right? Like sports are so cool and, you know, athleticism is so cool. And every once in a while, somebody takes a bad fall and gets a compound fracture and there's a femur sticking out of their leg. You know, that's just reality. It's like stuff goes wrong when you're out there with guns and bows and animals and, you know, lots of crazy things can happen. So we need to show it in a way, what my goal, so here's another aspect of this. I am like just not your typical hunter, right? I don't fit in with typical hunters. I've I I don't I'm not part of I didn't grow up in that culture. So I'm I am an outsider to it. That gives me a really fresh take, but I also I got to hunting through my passion for food. And that's not that's a more common pathway now. This because there were so many people like me who came out of the diet wars who decided to start hunting because they wanted to have that close relationship with food. So that's, that's more common now, but in the past, that wasn't really what was getting people into hunting culture. So I I look at it that I make this show not because I'm trying to promote hunting. I make it as a Trojan horse to promote connection to the natural world, because I believe that forces at work want to push people into a kind of digitized anti-human kind of slave state. I mean, I just look at what the direction things are going. I'm like, I'm really not comfortable with where things are headed from a surveillance perspective, from a mind control perspective, from a marketing perspective, from a food perspective. It looks extremely dystopian, this track we're on. So this show is my part in reminding people about the power that they have and about the relationship that they can have to the natural world because pretty soon people are going to be living in augmented realities. I mean, this is like, we're so close to it, you know, and that really concerns me. So the show is really about that. So I want to present it. I don't want to call it artistic flair, but I I emphasize the connection of food and place all the time. So I don't want people to see some of the banter. I don't want people to see some of the just the, there's stuff behind the scenes that happens on hunts that I just don't feel like works toward that goal and that aim, but I also don't change the story. So we hand the footage off to our editor. The editor gives me a cut and I narrate to what I'm seeing and to the story that I remember. And it's, so it's extremely authentic. And every once in a while, there's something where it's like, geez, I remember once a bear fell out of a tree. It was horrible. The bear fell out of the tree broke its back when it hit the ground. Like, I'm not going to show people that, you know, it's just, it's too much. Like it takes away from what I'm trying to do, you know? So I have to be careful with some of that stuff, 
But for the most part, I'm just sharing my passion for it and other people, the people I work with, their passion for it and trying to tell really relatable human stories. I mean, you know, in the beginning, we were pretty crude. I think we're getting a lot better at it now in the third and fourth season. But yeah, it's very authentic. But I do try to just make sure that the emphasis always brings people back to, because, you know, I have this saying internally here at the company, like this idea of being made of place. And that means like, I like, as, I like to have my body be made out of this place. Can I be made out of the water here instead of the water from Fiji? You know, can I be made out of the food that grows in this soil instead of, you know, apples from Argentina? Like, can I, you know, apples in Argentina would be great if I was in Argentina. It make perfect sense to me, but it's like, we grow apples here in New England. So why am I eating an apple from Washington from the store when we have apples that grow here? You know, it's very confusing to me, all of that. And that's not to say I'm against all of that, I'm not, but it's just like, I'm interested in this idea of being made out of place. So I'm always trying to push that idea because I want people to connect to their local landscape. Because again, I don't see how we're going to get out of this mess if everybody is isolated from their own environment. Or they're always talking about, quote unquote, the environment. I mean, I, I, freak, I hate that saying. I just hate it. It's like, what environment are you talking about? When people talk about the environment, it's like, what environment? Where? show me, take me out there. Where are you talking about? Because it's sort of this like vague concept of like the, and we have to save the environment. It's like, do you know any environments? You've been in any of them? Like, where are you talking about? Because sometimes they're just talking about some far flung distant place they saw in a David Attenborough documentary. It's like, yeah, there's an environment right outside your door too. Have you ever thought about that place? <laughs> What's going on there? You know? So that's what I'm, I'm trying to do, like Trojan horse people into a connection to to their environment, get them excited about where they live. Really random question with the falling out of trees. Was it the iguanas or the monitor lizards that fall out of the tree? The iguanas, man. And they're good eats. For those in Florida, those green iguanas are good eats, man. Did you film in winter? Were they falling out of trees? No, no. What we do is take a, a fishing rod, basically, and put a snare on the end of it. And then I, so I have like a nine-foot fishing rod. And I, I put the sneak on iguana. I mean, they see you coming, you know. Iguanas are fascinating. They've got a an organ on the top of their head that is a rudimentary eye almost. It has photoreceptive so that they can see the shadows of avian predators overhead. So as you try to like slink over them with a with this, you know, little snare on the end of a rod, like they know something's happening, but they keep their eyes on you. So they don't realize kind of what you're doing. They don't get it, you know. And then I'll catch them in that snare. And then they're like on the fishing rod and I'll bring them to myself, you know, get them into the cooler. But yeah, the chicken of the trees. They're, you know, I, I do a lot of hunting of animals that are invasive in environments and are causing, you know, that are deleterious to environments. So, you know, like alligators we were talking about before, like they're endemic to the South. They're from there, you know, but iguanas are not from there. And they, they made their way either through the pet trade or through the food trade being on ships or whatever, when they bring bananas or something like that. And they've escaped and naturalized themselves to South Florida. And they cause a lot of problems to the environment because they're not from there. And the animals and plants there are, haven't had time to adapt to their presence. So you don't have to feel bad harvesting them. You know what I mean? It's like, it's actually helpful. So I love it when that kind of thing aligns and you can harvest something, an animal that, without, you know, being, you know, impacting their population. in an, Like not destructive to the natural... Yeah. In fact, it's constructive, right? So, but iguana, yeah, very, very cool meat. Well, for listeners, apparently it's increasingly more a problem because there are so many of them. And I guess in the winter, 
they live in these trees. If they get too cold, they'll freeze and then they just fall out of the trees. Well, they go into a torpor. So they're not frozen because they're alive. They go dormant. Because have you read the stories of people like there's been so many stories of people who like they're walking down the street and there's all these iguanas, they put them in their car. Like, I don't know what they're thinking. And then they come back and the car's heated up and now there's 15 iguanas running around inside their car. Whoa. I've never seen one fall out of a tree, even though I went to Florida all the time growing up. But I remember I was talking to, I don't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody and we were talking about Florida and the person genuinely was like, I'm too scared to go to Florida because I'm really scared that an iguana is going to fall out of a tree on top of me. And I was like, (laughs) that's like, you really don't need, I don't go outside. You could be struck by lightning, you know? Oh, I also, just two random things. I had a complete reframe of the existence, speaking of consciousness and what it's like to be like something. I don't remember which author it was and which book, but she was talking about what the existence is like as a reptile. Basically, your entire existence is cortisol-driven and trying not to die. Because since they're cold-blooded, when you're getting warm, you have to go out in the open. So you're exposed to, you know, potential predators. So you have to worry about predators getting you. Then when you go back into the cold, the worry is dying of like hypothermia. So like literally it's just back and forth between not trying to die. And I was like, wow. There's something really interesting in the in in the Bible, you know, where you have this idea of the serpent who deceives Adam and Eve and there's like this dichotomy between mammalians and reptilian there you know, that I find really fascinating because as mammals, we're so emotive and we have this neocortex and reptiles just don't have that. And so there's this sense of a kind of coldness and a kind of almost evil, you know, I don't think it's really evil, but we kind of perceive like something menacing because, you know, like if a person is trying to harm you, you, you can imagine yourself trying to reason with that person and trying to like play on their emotions. Like, Hey, I have a family, like I have kids or like, come on, you know, but like with a reptile, it's like that, that none of that, ma- there's no emotion. <laughs> so there's something that we perceive in that. Like you look into the eyes of a reptile and you're like, oh, that's cold versus something that's, you know, thermogenic, like a, a mammal. And then also one comment about quote, the environment. I remember when I interviewed Matt Simon for his book, A Poison Like No Other, which is all about microplastics, that book like blew my mind and completely made me see the world differently. I was like, okay, everything is plastic. What am I doing? But he talks about recycling and how it's basically a lie. That blew my mind too. I was like, what? <laughs> like it was basically like created by the plastic industry to make you feel good about buying more because you can recycle it. About all the plastic you're sending over to the Philippines or whatever. Yeah. But it's like you're not really doing anything. So yeah, there's just a brief comment there. Random tangent. How do you feel about we're like bringing back the mammoth and things like that? Like bringing back extinct species? Yeah. I mean, there's like that, my very, my first just like off the cuff is like, have you seen Jurassic Park though? I'm disturbed sometimes by scientific hubris when there's this phenomenon, and I know I keep referencing the Bible, so I, I hope I'm not offending anybody there. But when, you know, but I mean, you, when you have a book that lasts six thousand years, you probably shouldn't just disregard it. You know, it tells a lot of really interesting stories. But one of the most common stories is about human hubris and pride. Like there's a really fantastic story, the Tower of Babel, where where humans are are convinced. What it is is like we want to be gods, right? So we want to 
we're unhappy with the idea that we have a creator and we need to be sort of like subservient to that creator. So we want to be creators ourselves. And it always in, you know, in the Bible over and over again, it, it leads to like ruin, you know? There's a great story. I really love the movie Fantasia, the scene in Fantasia with Mickey Mouse and Merlin. I don't know if you remember that scene where Mickey Mouse, Merlin leaves and leaves his hat, I think. And uh, Mickey gets the hat. Now he can do magic, but he's not qualified. So he starts creating things and everything he creates, creates a mess that's an unforeseen consequence. And you remember he like, he creates the buckets and the mops to try to clean up the mess, but it's just getting worse and worse until finally like Merlin comes back and can like set it right. And I think that's what we're doing. So the scientific world will often say this thing, this is the cringiest thing I can think of to say, the human brain is the most complex thing in the entire universe. It's like, wow, man, that's... Yeah, that really bothers me. That's that's some hubris, you know? So, but if you believe and truly internalize that, and let's say you have like a, a real atheistic position, well, then it's like, well, why wouldn't we become creators? So it seems like when I look out at what we're doing here, it's like a giant Tower of Babel story. It's like we want to now start creating our own organisms. We want to start to create our own worlds. We want to create a metaverse. We want to create, like we're not content to enjoy this incredible creation. I mean, this incredible creation. It is so incredible here. It could be even more incredible if we would stop always trying to change it and actually let it flourish and instead garden it instead of cutting it all down to build our own crap that we then put in the landfill. <laughs> it's like, what are we doing to this place? So I wish that we could enjoy that. Instead, we seem to, everybody seems to be so fascinated by the idea of becoming creators. And that's like the original Luciferian concept, you know? So it's, I don't think that trying to bring back the mammoth is directly luciferian but if you really like play with the idea for a while it's like wait a second why why do we feel the need to do that it's like hey why don't we do something for the elephants that we still have here you know why are we trying to do that so i don't fully like it i i think that there's times in my life where i have such a powerful like lamentation about mammoths because first of all as a hunter i'm so you know if you're a european descended person or Native American descended person, probably most people on the planet come from elephant hunters. I mean, we just need to accept that. Like we're all elephant hunters because, you know, mammoths, mastodons, these are elephants, species of elephant. So people all through time hunted elephants. And while most of the mammoths were gone by 10,000 years ago, there's an island off the coast, I believe off the coast of Vancouver, I want to say, that had mammoths 4,000 years ago. That's like when the pyramids were there. This was like the last population we know of, the last extant population of mammoths. And so sometimes I'm like, when you think about timelines on bigger scales, like when you think about 300,000 years of you know human evolution, for instance, 4,000 years is really close. And part of me is like, oh my God. I mean, I'm looking at a picture on my wall right now of some mammoth hunters that I have a painting framed you know, of these <laughs> mammoth hunters. I wish so badly to have seen that world and to have hunted in that world. You know, it's like, oh God, it's right there. So part of me, it's like, I love to go to a museum that has mammoth or mastodon skeletons. I mean, I love it. You know, it's like, if I'm in New York City, I'm going to Museum of Natural History because I want to go see the mastodon, you know? 
I think that we're better suited personally. I think we're like Mickey Mouse with Merlin's hat. We've gotten our hands on magic. We don't understand. We don't know. We ha- we are very bad. We've demonstrated over and over again our inability to think about the consequences. We've also shown ourselves again and again that we can't foresee unforeseeable consequences. And every time we create something new, it's like, think about this. There was a time where we, do you know, we ran the industrial revolution on whale oil. I mean, that's just astonishing to think about. The whaling started in Nantucket, right out of Massachusetts, essentially. And we were whaling right there. Now, a whale is just covered in so much blubber that, you know, you'd bring that back to shore. You'd process all that oil, render it. And that's what the city streets were lit with, that the lamps ran on whale oil and the machines of the Industrial Revolution were lubricated with whale oil. Now, of course, we quickly fished that out. And so people went further and further until eventually they were going on three-year-long voyages. And the boats, I mean, this is fascinating history. The boats were factories for, they would process the whales into oil at sea. So they would have the whole hold would be filled with barrels. They would go with empty barrels and they wouldn't come back until the barrels were filled. Mainly sperm whale, but eventually when they started to run low, they would, they started hunting all types of whales. This is how we got to Tahiti and New Zealand. And, you know, we went into the Pacific from essentially people were going to the Pacific from Massachusetts seeking whales. Eventually it got to the point where there wasn't enough whales left, but there was a belief at the time that, that, you know, and this was a very Christian culture at the time. There was a belief that God was, wanted us to slay the behemoths so that we could light our cities to push back the darkness and the sin. You know, I mean, this is like a, this was woven into our worldview at the time, but eventually we're running low on whales and there was a panic. Like, what are we going to do? We're running out of whale oil. And then the discovery of fossil fuel, of actual, you know, petrol, right? So then it was like, oh my God, a miracle, petroleum oil. You know, petro means rock. It's like rock oil. This is incredible oil from rocks. And so we start this modern era burning fossil fuel. Well, turns out there's unintended consequences, (laughs) right? And it's like, we built this whole civilization on this oil and now everybody's panicking about that. And it's like, we're like Mickey. At first, it's all just this cool magic. But then it's like, oh no, we've actually made the world considerably worse. And now because we've had all this free power and labor, the very cheap power and labor from oil, we now have 8 billion people to think about. And so it's like, we're in a way worse situation than we were with the whale oil thing. That's my concern. As we we, we keep doing the same, we keep making the same mistake over and over again. And the oldest literature in the world is about us making these same mistakes over and over again. So I wish that the, somehow we could embrace, like, imagine if, if you were a character in a video game, right? And you don't know who made the video game, but you have free will. You're not just an NPC, you have free will, but you're in the game. But instead of enjoying the game and playing it as a temporary experience because no one gets out alive, instead you become obsessed, well, what's this game made of? What's the code to this game? Can I figure out how to hack the code of this game? Wait, I want to build my own game. And what you end up missing is the experience of the game. And you don't actually get to live the ride because you're so busy trying to recreate your own version of the ride or take it apart and reassemble it and make it into other things. I just think that's what we're doing. And I, I just think we're, we're missing the point because we have a real opportunity while we're alive to evolve our souls, you know, or 
you know, we can squander our opportunity here too. And we can even turn against it. And I think that's where most people are at, though they don't mean to be. I think that's where most of us are at. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Huge thought experiment question for you. Let's just say that it turns out that this is actually all a virtual reality and we are, it's like the matrix and actually our bodies are, you know, being harvested somewhere for energy for, I don't know, the backstory of where we actually are doesn't really matter for the question. If it turned out (laughs) that this was all a virtual reality, would it change how you feel about everything you've said thus far and feel? I think it kind of reinforces it in a way. I would be really curious who programmed it. You know what I mean? Because what I experience when I go into the natural... Have you had any experience with entheogenic plants or anything like that? Have you drank ayahuasca or something like that? Like psychedelics? It's on my to-do list. Someday you'll do it. Someday you'll do it. And then when you when you do, you'll go, oh, that's funny how I said it was on my to-do list. It, no, literally, it's on my to-do list. Yeah. So I think it reinforces it. But my experience of being alive is that, especially because of the time that I've spent in the natural world, I see an intelligence at work that is so superior, vastly superior to anything human generated. This is hard. I often, I mean, it's a whole nother interview conversation, but in a nutshell, I say like what people are living in now is kind of like an amusement park. I call it artifact land because artifact the word artifact shares the same root word as art. Art and artifact, it means uh, things shaped by human hands or human will. So like if you could picture a piece of flint, like you were walking through the Arizona desert and you pick up a rock and it's made of flint, and then you pick up an arrowhead on the ground and that's made of flint, those two things are molecularly identical. But one has been shaped by humans and the other one is still natural. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So most people live in a world where everything around them is an artifact. Like where there's nothing natural anymore. You know, like even in the city, it's like, well, there's pigeons. It's like, well, pigeons are feral domesticated birds that humans domesticated. They're an artifact. 
Like, what about that tree over there? It's like, well, that's a horticultural variety of tree that humans domesticated. That's not a natural tree. What about Central Park? It's like, that was built by people. It's like, none of it's, you're living in an amusement park, right? But when you get out into the actual natural world, it's so clear to me, or even beyond that, when I, when I look into space, <laughs> you know, there's something at work so much grander than human intelligence. When you start to look at things like math, geometry, and there's some kind of an intelligence at play, like DNA, like how does this, there's an intelligence at play so vastly superior to our own that if this was a simulation, whatever programmed that simulation is so vastly superior to us that I would want to be in the presence of that being. And how would you feel about this virtual world that you're in? Would you still feel? I'd want to live this life, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I'd want to live this life. I mean, if at some point, it would be really nice to know at the end that it wasn't, you know, like you said before, you're not a nihilist. It's like, I would love to know at the end that I'm I'm not annihilated, but that instead I'm just going to take off the headset and be like, oh yeah, I forgot that I'm actually from this reality, (laughs) you know? That would be wonderful. Because since none of us know what what dying is, right? That's amazing. Like here we are, we here we are. We could bring back a mammoth, <laughs> but we don't know anything about what dying is. How is that possible? We haven't even like begun to explore that. We don't know what that is. It's like a, crazy to me. Yeah, it would be really cool to step out of this world at the end and and into another one. I would love that. So because uh, I would love to continue to exist since I enjoy existing a lot. But I think that it's kind of like, look, if you get on a ride at Disneyland, just like enjoy the ride, you know, enjoy the ride. Like, like why would you halfway through start to try to take apart the ride and build your own ride? It's like, just go through the ride, you know? And I feel like for, you know, maybe 290,000 years, that's what Homo sapiens did. They took the ride. But the last 10,000 years, we've been like, we're going to change this ride. And we've created a real mess, and we are clearly not sure what to do now. I mean, it's so obvious. We're just, just turn on the news. Like, we're just, we're clearly out. We don't have any idea what we're doing. (laughs) So, like a parent, you know, it's like the, you know, that saying that inmates are running the asylum. Maybe speaking to that, a good concept to end on. I feel like this is like my confession moment. Giving agency for people to actually do everything that you've been talking about and have this connection to the world and, and get beyond this world of artifacts that we live in and this, you know, industrialized, you know, life, actually connecting and doing what you're saying. A, how can people in their everyday lives actually do that? And and then B, the confession aspect of it is, <laughs> so like for me, I love all of this so much and I love thinking about it and talking about it. And I love my, I love my cucumber plants and I, I do want to go out into the world. I also like, there's me and my sister. She's like, loves hiking and like doing all the things. I actually, I find it very overwhelming. So like my idea of a fun time is watching you do these things. It's not me actually go do the things, even though I completely love it and respect it and treasure it. I have like zero desire to, or maybe it's just because it's like overwhelming to me, like being in the elements. Like I don't do well in the elements. Uh, wait, can I interrupt you for a second? I bet you do great. At, I bet you do great at the beach. Do you like the beach? It's okay. I do like the beach a little bit. I liked it growing up. You're going to be one of the first candidates for the spaceships that go to Mars. It's going to be a good fit for you. <laughs> 
that doesn't sound so appealing either. (laughs) See, I'm like the, here's just a quick example. Like I went to see a, um, (laughs) this is how bad it is for me. I was going to see a show here. I love seeing theater and we have this theater where they show the Fox theater. They they do touring Broadway shows and I always like dress up in gowns and it's like a fun time. And I was going with a date. And so he texted me beforehand and he was like, do you want to meet out? And this is like during the summer. He was like, do you want to meet outside the theater? Like we can meet outside the theater and then go in together. And I was like, no, because I was like, <laughs> I was like I'll meet you inside. <laughs> and it's not because I don't like, I love the concept in my head of the outdoors. I just, I don't like the heat. I'm allergic to grass and I like a controlled air conditioned environment. So for people like me, <laughs> for everybody, what is your suggestion, your advice, your guidance for how people can actually do what you're saying and connect. And if they're people like me who would rather not be in the elements all the time. Yeah. Okay. So everybody's busy and you can only do one thing at a time. So you got to start really small. So it's like, how do you eat an elephant? It's like one bite at a time. So you got to take something small. So let's make it really, really simple. Let's say that everybody could just meet one creature that's already part of their life in a deeper way. So for you, for instance, you have this relationship with these cucumbers. But it's like, what's a cucumber? Because newsflash, cucumber is an artifact. There is no natural cucumber. Like you're, not, you're never going to be walking through the woods and find a, oh, look, there's a cucumber. It's not going to happen because cucumbers don't come from nature. But there, was a, there is a species that we've mutated into cucumbers over the course of thousands of years. Similar to, there's no chihuahuas running around on the savanna anywhere, right? You get that, right? Like a chihuahua is a gray wolf, but we've, we've taken the genome of the gray wolf and through breeding and breeding and breeding, we've created chihuahuas and dachshunds and all these dogs that don't exist in nature. There's no cow. It comes from an animal called the aurochs. So it would be interesting for you to trace that a little bit. Be like, like instead of just going, that's a cucumber, be like, what is a cucumber? And see if you can find out what other plants are closely related to cucumbers and where do they come from and what's the progenitor species. Like that would be really interesting for you to find out because actually cucumbers come from a spiky poisonous plant that (laughs) we've bred into something edible. So it'd be neat for you to see what comes before the artifact. What was it before it was an artifact? What's that thing? That'd be really interesting for you to like kind of dig a little deeper on that and see who's there. And then for the average person, it's like, try to learn one wild organism, like start in your lawn in your backyard. Like there's so many different things. Like if you went and you took a couple square feet of your lawn and you just look closely, you're going to be like, oh, there's a bunch of different things here. Can I find out what one of these is? And then what do we know about that? Does it have medicinal value? Does it have food value? Like learning just one species You know, if you've got dandelions in your yard, it's like, man, what if I were to harvest some of those and make a tea out of the roots? Like, what's that like? Because that's a thing people do. So it's like a chance to meet. And it's not because that cup of tea is going to be so valuable. It's because that's going to connect you to a non-human being that shares this planet with you. And now you're not alone. (laughs) You have a companion. And everywhere you go and you see people waging war on their dandelions in their lawn, you're going to be like, man, you're missing out on that relationship. You know, because like that's another creature that shares this planet with you, has been here a lot longer than people. So it's like try to develop one relationship because then once you do, you can develop another one and another one. And I 
you know, I have a network of, I don't know, a couple hundred species that I'm connected to. So that when I'm in the world, I know I'm not alone. I know they're all there and they're all there to support me and I'll always advocate for them too. So there's something about that, you know, in the same way that it kind of sucks to like go to a new town and not know anyone. It's a very lonely feeling. And once you start to make friends and tap into a community, it's like, ah, okay, I feel safe again. So do that, but like on a species wide level, and you got to start with one. So it's like pick a plant or pick a mushroom or pick an, an animal and learn about it, go a little deeper. So it's like, okay, I like going to the park and watching the squirrels. It's like, okay, well get a book about squirrels and start learning a little bit about them. Cause it's, you'll learn some fascinating things that you never would see just sitting there on the park bench. So do, so go a little deeper into a relationship with a thing that has personhood that's not human. I love that. Well, I'm going to start by figuring out what this plan is on my desk that I don't know what it is. <laughs> you should be able to take a picture of it and then search it through Google Images. With an app? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, that's what my buddy's always doing. It, I don't like, it drives me crazy, but he's always finding things faster than me. So, Oh my goodness. I actually have a few plants here that I don't know what they are. So... Well, this has been, oh my goodness, like I was telling you and I was telling the audience how excited I was about this conversation. This like, I was already excited. This like a thousand million times surpassed all my expectations. I so genuinely enjoyed this. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you for what you're doing. And now I'm just thinking about how each episode we pull out like two topics to focus on for like my Instagram like quotes. I'm like, what are we going to, there's so much we talked about. There's so, like, I don't know what to go with. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important our mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I won the wife lottery. <laughs> I really did. I, I have a wife that is really beyond, I mean, sincerely beyond what I deserve, who rescued me from, I mean, I was just lost. You know, I knew a lot of things, but I, I was lost in some ways. So I'm really grateful for my wife, Ivani, and, and the way that she sort of like stabilized my life. And then, and yeah, taught me about love in a way that I just, I don't think I would have ever, I don't think there was another woman that would have ever been able to do that. Like, I think she's the only person that could have done that. And so that would have had the patience and the compassion. So to even deal with me. So yeah, if it wasn't her, I don't I can't imagine what would have happened to me, but I don't think it was going to be good. And so I feel like she swam out in a storm and rescued me and and got me back to shore, you know. So I'm just super grateful for that. Well, for listeners, she is in some of the episodes and you have the whole episode preparing for it's for your wedding, right? Or the the food? Oh, in the first season, yeah. Yeah, it's an old old one. Yeah, but our wedding is actually in the in the show. Yeah, and you have the episode where she goes on her first hunt. Her turkey hunt. Yeah, yeah. Because you said that turkey was the first thing that you did hunt as a child. Yeah, it, it was. But not as a child, actually. It's, it's probably like eight, eight, nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, I just sincerely didn't grow up doing it. So it's like, it, right? there's an episode where she does her first turkey. Yeah, yeah she shows up every season, actually, in the, in the show. And on my Instagram, you know, often writing her love letters on my Instagram account. How can listeners best follow your work so they can watch Wild Fed on Outdoor Channel? And it's on multiple different streaming platforms. I was watching a lot of it through Amazon Prime, actually. Yeah, that's what I recommend to people, too. Because, uh, you know, so many people today, myself included, don't have cable now. So it's like, it's funny to be on cable, and, and it's at a, but at a time where people don't really watch cable. So 
So uh, Amazon is the best way. You know, it's behind a paywall, so you have to pay for the episodes. But Amazon Prime to watch WildFed. And then I have two podcasts. I'm not podcasting right now, but I've done two different shows. One was called, my first show was Rewild Yourself. My second show was WildFed. So I think both have about 175 episodes. I'm on Instagram at Daniel Vitalis. So that's, those are probably the best places to, to find me. Awesome. Well, we will put links to all of that in the show notes. And just thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. It's just so incredible, so profound, and for your time. And I just really, really genuinely enjoyed this. And hopefully in the future, we can do this again. Yeah, well, there's plenty of plenty of directions to go. So I'd love to do that again. So many things to talk about. Well, thank you, Daniel. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I will talk to you later. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.